Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. you have your scripture open to Colossians chapter 2. Again, we'll be looking at just verse 8 uh, this morning. Um, the astute among you can memorize it in just a few moments, but still have it open, look at it. Let the Word of God come to you through the ears, through the eyes, through the touch, the feel of your text in front of you. Uh, so we look at that text, see to it that no one uh, takes you captive through philosophy or through vain deceit, which would be half-truths and lies. Um, I have mentioned this story before. It bears repeating, one, because it's a good story, and two, it makes me look good. But uh, uh, Debbie and I like to go down to Williamsburg from time to time. Those of you who don't know, Williamsburg is a restored colonial town. It was the uh, capital of the colony of Virginia during the uh, uh, Revolutionary War era, and they have the town restored uh, to some place in the 1770s, depending on what mood they're in. And the uh, people who are working there are dressed in costume, and they are living the history of the 1770s. Uh, and it's, it's quite an interesting way to look at uh, the beginning of our country and, and the things that were taking place as our nation came into being. Uh, well, one of the times we were there, Debbie and I were making the rounds, and so we found ourselves in the governor's palace, a very nice, ornate, uh, restora uh, restored building or recreated building. And uh, as we were there, the tour guide was saying, well, this is the governor's palace, and you could come here and ask the governor to take care of a problem for you. And so this is where you came. This was, this was Virginia democracy in action. You could come, ask the governor to hear your case. But you could only do that if you were white, male, over the age of 21, owned property, and were a member of the Church of England. I turned to Debbie and I said, we couldn't come here. So we wandered off and we found ourselves at Bruton Parish Church. And there the guide was telling us that this is Bruton Parish Church. It's the center of the community. And this is where everybody came in order to hear the announcements and to talk and to, and to share ideas. And so this, this was a focal point of the community. And I turned to Debbie and I said, this is an Anglican church. We wouldn't be here. So we walked to the other end of the mall, and uh, we went into the, uh, the state building, the legislature building, and we were standing there where the legislature took place, and the guide was telling us that this is the, uh, the sort of the, the seedbed of American democracy. This is a place where you could come, you would be elected by your fellow citizens, and you could come represent them and make laws and changes, and the people would rule here in the legislature of, of uh, Colonial Williamsburg over the colony of Virginia, and you could come and you could be a representative as long as you were white male over the age of 21, owned property, and were a member of a church of England. So I turned to Debbie and I said, you wouldn't find us here either. We went across the way and we went into the courthouse and they said, ah, here's the courthouse. And this represents the height of, of, uh, of English jurisprudence. And as, as, you, as you come in here, uh, you would be tried by a jury of your peers. And your case would be heard by people just like you. And you would serve on the jury. If you were white, 
male, over the age of 21, owned property, and were a member of the Church of England. I turned to Debbie and said, good news, we don't have to do jury duty. <laughs> then we went to the jail. And there the, uh, the jailer was telling us that this is where prisoners were kept before they were brought to trial. Um, but she explained to us that nobody was kept here as punishment, uh, it, it, that uh, when crimes were committed back then, uh, there were just three ways of punishing somebody. Uh, you either hung them, just death penalty, or you hu humiliated them, that is, you put them in the stocks and they were out there and people would throw things and laugh at them and things like that, or you would find them, they would just have to pay money. But the idea of going to jail for a certain set, uh, period of time because you had committed a crime was unknown in colonial uh, uh, Williamsburg in Virginia, and, and so she, she presented that, and, um, and that was all very interesting. I, I thought that was fascinating. But I, I turned to her and I said, look, is this where I would find the Baptists? She said, oh yes, oh yes. Because there are actually two things that would get you put in prison indefinitely. One was not paying your debts. And if you were a debtor, you would be put into prison and you would stay there until your family got enough money to buy you out of, out of jail. Uh, which is why you should be nice to your family, by the way. Uh, she said, but that, that's one reason. So somebody could be put into prison, uh, into jail uh, indefinitely because they were a debtor. She said, the only other reason someone would be put into jail indefinitely was if they were a Baptist preacher. Some of you like that idea, I know. But here's the deal. In colonial Virginia, you were not allowed to preach the gospel unless you were licensed by the state. In other words, you had to go down to your local courthouse and find a clerk of the court or somebody who, uh, who would write you a license and, 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 and that would authorize you to go out and preach the gospel. Now, this was a great idea, actually, because the reason for it was the official church, the Anglican church, would, would be in a community, and so you had one Anglican church, but then somebody came along and said, you know, I'd like to start a Presbyterian church. Not a problem, and you'd be licensed to, to start and to preach in your Presbyterian church. But if a second guy came along and said, I'd also like to start a Presbyterian church, the court could say, well, you know, that, that just doesn't make sense. We already have one of those. Well, why don't you go somewhere else? And so it was just a way to make sure you didn't have just churches all over the place. Well, Baptists being the cooperative people that we are, we said the state has no right and no place in telling us what to believe or what to do. It has no role in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so you had Baptist preachers doing things like going out and preaching in fields and and in homes and in public places, and they would preach the gospel, and they would get, get arrested, and they would be brought into court, and the judge would say, will you stop preaching the gospel without a license? Now, we don't, you, you can preach the gospel. This is a great compromise. Just get the license. It's the law of the land. And the Baptists would say, no, you have no right to interfere with the preaching of the gospel in any way. We are not licensed by you. We are called by God. And so off to jail would go the Baptist preachers. And so if you wanted to find the first Baptist church of Williamsburg, Virginia, go to the jail, look at one of the cells. It's sort of a wood 
I was going to say panel, but it's, it's worse than that. But you see a, a wood-lined room, and at one end there might be a window with bars across it. That would be the pulpit. And there the pastor would stand, and he would preach through those iron bars, and a group would gather below the window to hear the Word of God proclaimed. You see, we know what it's like to be put in jail for our beliefs. Been there, done that. This is nothing new for us. The world has always tried to restrict the proclamation of the gospel. The world has always tried to control how believers operate and how they live and what they say and how, how they operate. And, and, and the world has always tried to confine us to those kinds of prisons. But worse than the physical prison into which a believer might be thrown is the mental and emotional and spiritual prisons into, into which we are thrown when we are made captives of the world. That's what Paul is talking about here in Colossians. He says, see to it, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now that word take captive, that, that was a word that was originally uh, used when a pirate ship would capture a merchant ship. And having done so, the pirates would go and they'd get all the cargo off the, off the merchant ship and they would seize it and take it onto their ship, get rid of the other ship. It was sort of seizing the spoils of, of, of the capture. It came to be applied to uh, first seizing the spoils of war. That is, you conquered the other guy's army, so you got all his stuff, and you take that. That's, that's the word that was used. And ultimately, it came to mean taking prisoners of war. And so when Paul says... Um, see to it no one takes you captive. He, he says, in this warfare that we're in, see to it that you're not made a prisoner of the enemy, that you're not captured by the enemy and put under his control. And he says the way that works is when you are um, inattentive and the philosophy of the age grabs you. Now, when we think of philosophy, I dare say most of us think of Aristotle, Plato. Anybody think of Spinoza just now? <laughs> Spinoza. Spinoza's an interesting philosopher. He's actually probably the favorite philosopher of secular science uh, these days. Spinoza taught that God is the laws of nature. God is the laws of physics. Uh, and so when you look at, at how science operates, you're actually seeing God in this sort of uh, structured way in which the universe works. It's, it's kind of a pantheism, panentheism uh, sort of thing. Um, I've, I've lost you here, but it'll be on the test, Spinoza, S-P-I-N-O-Z-A. Uh, just go into work tomorrow and say, we were talking about Spinoza yesterday in church. Yeah, that's the way people will look at you, and they're like, why? All right, you didn't think of Spinoza. But the word philosophy back then wasn't used just of an academic pursuit of, say, logic or, or a system of ideas. It was actually used for any structure of ideas that told you what was right, what was wrong, what was true, what was false, what you should do, what you ought not to do. In other words, that word philosophy uh, was just used to encompass uh, the, the, the way in which uh, the, the world around you shaped who you were and how you sort of filtered that into your life. For example, Jewish writers, when they were talking to uh, Gentile uh, folks, would oftentimes refer to the Jewish religion as the Jewish philosophy. 
Because folks would understand that, oh, Jews have a philosophy that tells them what's true, what's not true, what they should do, who, you know, all, all those kinds of things in life. And so when Paul says, don't be taken captive by philosophy, he's not saying, make sure that Plato doesn't jump out of the bushes and grab you and make you an idealist or something. He's saying, make sure that you don't uh, find yourself swept up in the philosophy of the age, the, just sort of the general thinking of the age, the values of the age, the way in which the age thinks about things and incorporates things into their lives. So, so make sure you're not taken prisoner by those things. Now, the problem is when we talk about the philosophy of the age, it is so pervasive it's almost impossible to avoid. It fills the air. And you know that when you breathe polluted air, you wind up with polluted lungs. And our difficulty is we don't even know the air is polluted because we've, we've grown up in it and we just think this must be normal. This is, this is just uh, the way everybody thinks. And we don't realize that it's a specific uh, sort of direction and value structure that the world is imposing upon uh, culture and, and society. Uh, I'll give you one example. Um, John Dewey. John Dewey was an American philosopher. Some think that, that he was the greatest American philosopher of the 20th century. Uh, but John Dewey, uh, born in the 1850s somewhere, died in 19, no, 1860s, died in 1952. But in the 20s, he started writing, and uh, his, his theory of knowledge is that knowledge isn't facts that you can learn, but rather knowledge is kind of like a process in which there's something you want to do, you've got a problem with it, and if you find a way to successfully complete what you want to do, that must be truth. In other words, truth is something you do to get what you want. Now, it's a little more ornate than that, but that's basically it. For those of you who care, it's a Hegelian dialectic, but we'll just leave that to one side. All right. Very close to William James and pragmatism, but the idea is something is true if it works. There's, not, there's, there's, there's no absolute truth. It's just what works and what works for you. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Now, this philosophy, John Dewey, was the foundational philosopher for contemporary educational theory. Uh, he's not the, the total work of, of educational theory, but most of modern educational theory goes back to John Dewey and this idea of truth, uh, which is either pragmatic, pragmatism, or um, sometimes it's called positivism. It's a, that, that's a little bit different. Dewey himself called it um, uh, instrumentalism. Uh, truth is just an instrument to get what you want. Uh, but this thought that, that worked into the academic scene in the 1920s and 30s has now filtered into uh, the schools in the United States. And so the idea of truth is that truth is just sort of an activity. There's not an objective truth, it's an activity. And so what you're doing is just as good as what somebody else is doing, and truth can change from person to person and that kind of thing. Now, um, that, I, I think I could draw that out in, in, in many ways, sort of the abandonment of the idea of, of learning facts and memorizing things. Oh, memorizing isn't learning. You know, we want kids to think for themselves. You ever notice that whenever a teacher says, I want kids to think for themselves, what they mean is, I want kids to, to think for themselves just like I think. Anybody who's been to a college, secular college, knows that. By the way, you have to memorize stuff. I mean, at, at, at some point, you just have to memorize stuff. You know, learning is fun. Not always. I mean, 
If you don't think learning can be hard and it's not fun, just take New Testament Greek. I mean, the ablative case is not fun. I've been dying to say that in public for years. All right. So that, that was just this idea that, that just truth is, is, is sort of an activity or so forth. Now, as Christians, we know that truth is absolute because God is truth and God is absolute. Now, we understand that our minds are working real hard to comprehend who God is and to perfect our understanding of who God is, but it's not as though we're just out here floating around in this nebulous sort of uh, relativistic world and whatever we light upon is as good as any other. No, we have a goal. It is the glory of God, and that's truth, and that's what we're looking for, and we're working towards that. It's a whole different way to go about the, the, the question of truth. But so often you, you hear it just said as, as if nobody uh, could possibly question it. You know, truth as well as it's what's true for you and what's true for me. They may not be the same, but hey, that's good for you, it's good for me. That's the philosophy of this age. And it's a vain deception. You know, one of the other philosophies that floats around is atheism. Most of you think I just mispronounced atheism, but I didn't. Atheism is the idea that there is no God. Uh, atheism, which would be spelled exactly the same way. It's just the alpha privative in, in front of, uh, of theists. Uh, but uh, atheism, as I would put it to you, is living as if there is no God. Now, almost everybody you know believes in God. It used to be 90-some percent, now it's down to 80-some percent, and you can't tell much of a difference because most of the people who say, I believe in God, it makes no difference at all in their life. I believe in God, but he's just sort of out there somewhere, and, and if I need him, maybe he'll show up. I believe in God, but uh, uh, he's sort of a, 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 a grandfather-type figure, which isn't bad. You know, nothing. But, you know, he's just a, sort of an indulging grand... That's not bad either. All right, he's this old guy. You know, that's not bad either. I'm trying to find something, yeah, okay. But you, you get the idea that, that God is just this, this guy who's going to pat us on the back and help us out, and he's there for us, and isn't that cool? But day-to-day -day life, he, you know, he really should mind his own business. I'll illustrate something else. You know, people who live as if there's no God. Just ask one of your secular friends, say, do you think there's heaven? Yeah, I think there's heaven. A lot of people believe in heaven. What do you think heaven is? They'll say, well, heaven is a place where I go and I... And I see my friends, and I see my loved ones, and we're together, and we have a good time together, and we have a picnic together, and, and, and you know, we share stories, and I, I'm up there, and I'm playing golf or fishing or, or whatever it is, and, and that's what heaven is. It's this wonderful place where we're happy with our friends and our family. They never mention God. Most people, you know, when they talk about heaven, they have no concept that God actually is in heaven. We, as believers in Jesus Christ, know there is a heaven, and God is the focal point of heaven. When we get to heaven, there's not going to be a bad seat in the house, not one obstructed view. We are going to sit in the seats of heaven or stand there, and we are going to be focused on Christ, every seat in the house, focused on the Lamb, focused on the one upon his throne, and we will sing his praises for all eternity. Amen. That's what it means to believe in heaven where God resides and sits upon his throne. But most atheists... I believe in God, they just don't think God is in heaven. And so God is, it, it, it just doesn't function very much in their lives. Now, this is the normal thing that people have about, about God. This is the philosophy of the age. Oh, I believe in God and stuff. And you know, we start to believe it too. 
just God and stuff, and we start to tell these, you know, these, these happy stories. Look, <laughs> I believe when we get to heaven, we're going to see our loved ones and we'll be with our friends. I think we'll join hands, and the greatest joy we'll have is we're going to worship together. We're just going to praise the Lamb together. But the philosophy of the age just creeps in, and it, and it saps us of, this, of, of, of the, the, the glory of who God is because of the atheism uh, of the world. Moral relativism um, is, is just part and parcel of the world's philosophy. Um, the, um, the actual name for it is something like situation ethics. Sometimes it's called consequentialism. Uh, but the, the, the basic idea is no action is right, no action is wrong. Um, it it's just depends on the circumstances. And, and so any action could be good in a loving circumstance, it, it, uh, action if it were in the right and correct circumstances. So there's no absolute morality. Folks, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that there is something called goodness and morality, and it is absolute. But do you ever find yourself just sort of slipping into this relativistic mindset and, hey, that's okay for you. That's okay for you. I mean, if you're just talking about, you know, are, are they going to have pizza or hot dogs, you know, that, that's fine. But, you know, when, well, your chosen lifestyle is good for you. Your living arrangement is good for you, you know. That, that's okay. You can do that. And so Paul says to these Colossian Christians, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. Now, the reason he says that, I remind you of where we started in the letter to the Colossians, is that in the city of Colossae, there were just scads of different ways to live your life. There were different gods, different religions, different systems, different philosophies. You had the power of Rome, you had the philosophy of Greece, you had the religion of the Jews. And all this is sort of floating around in a mishmash. Remember, we call that a murky world, and what do we need? We need clarity. And that clarity comes as we're focused on Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, don't be taken captive. Don't, don't become a prisoner of war to the philosophy of this age. And folks, it won't happen overtly. Most of us will recognize the enemy who attacks us head on, who comes and says, hey, give up Jesus, give up church, give up the Bible, give up God. We're, we're going to fight against that. We know that. But when he comes to us gently and says, hey, don't be a fanatic about it. Hey, don't go overboard about it. Hey, don't you know it's good for you? It's not good for everybody. That's when we get into trouble. That's when we become captives, and it happens in a very subtle way. Now, Paul says, do not be taken captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, that is, according to just what people think of that. It's a little more on it. Uh, that, that word tradition there was used in the sense of what everybody knows and passes on to the next generation. That's, that's basically the word tradition. Parodicus is the Greek word there. Um, and so he says, according to what the, this human mentality says is right and passes on, don't you be held captive to that. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, that, this is a little more difficult phrase, but ba basically think of it this way. Don't be taken captive by a philosophy that is based upon human-centered thinking according to just the, the pablum and the basic ideas that everybody knows are true. And then what does he say? and not according to Christ. That is the key. A philosophy not according to Christ. Don't be taken captive by it because we are, if you will, captives of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul spent all that time in, in chapter 1 talking about who Jesus is. You remember that? 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's the purpose of creation. The whole universe is pointing to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So he's the firstborn of creation, and he is the head of the body, the church. In other words, Christ is the one who gives meaning and definition and direction to everything that the church does and everything that the church is about. So all throughout chapter 1, we were looking at those three big ideas about Jesus. He's the image of God. He is the firstborn of creation. He is the head of the body. He's talked about all those things just so he can get to this point and say, and compare the philosophy that surrounds you to Jesus Christ. If it's not according to Christ, it has no place in the life of the believer. Okay. Now, last week, uh, Randy looked at, at verses 6 and 7, and he told you, he said, now, these, these verses are the, uh, the linchpin, the, the, the focal verses of the letter and, uh, it, and, and now you can sort of see why. Let me just read them real quick. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, as you receive this one who is the image, the firstborn, and the head, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Walk in him. And he's going to talk about, the rest of the letter talks about what does it mean to walk in Jesus Christ the way you received it. The first thing he says is, it means you're not going to be made a, a, a captive of the philosophy of the world. We're captives of Jesus Christ. Now, this makes a big difference, folks. It makes a big, big difference. You see, Jesus Christ is perfectly holy, gloriously holy. It takes a rabid cynic to say there was anything wrong with Jesus of Nazareth. His life was lived in holy perfection, absolutely reflective of the goodness of God. Our philosophy, if you will, our way of life is according to Christ, according to his holiness. But here's the thing. The holy, righteous Jesus reached down to the woman taken in adultery and said, I don't condemn you. Go. Don't sin anymore. I forgive you. You understand what happened there? When the world thinks about goodness and perfection, you know, and, and, and you know how the world loves to point at Christians and say, ah, you say people should do this and that, but you've done this and that. Our, our goal is perfection. Congratulations, you pointed out we're not perfect. But here's the thing. We know the one who can take our imperfection Heal it, forgive it, reconstruct it, recreate it until we are made perfect in the image of God's dear Son. See, the philosophy of the world says, well, if you're going to hold up this, this standard of perfection, you have to be perfect. What we know is we hold up Jesus Christ who is perfect, and he is drawing us ever unto himself. And all oh, the glorious day when we are made perfect in Jesus Christ. Amen. That's a different way to think about morality. Jesus Christ was absolute truth. He didn't just stumble around in his thought process. He, he didn't evolve and develop his opinions. It, it, it wasn't as though Jesus said one thing the first year of his ministry, and by the third year he was saying, you know, guys, I really over, overemphasized that kingdom of God thing. Let's back off of that. No, Jesus gave truth every time he opened his mouth, absolute perfect truth. And his disciples never got it. <laughs> you know, they used to say things like, Jesus, Jesus, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name. You, we told him to stop, and he won't do it. 
Can you imagine the Son of God who has come to reclaim a lost humanity, and he's listening to that? He says, guys, come on. I'll handle that. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. You do what I've told you to do. And Simon Peter takes Jesus to one side and says, Jesus, you know, you keep talking about this cross thing. You're going to Jerusalem. You're going to be crucified. That's not it. I've got these charts in the back of my Bible, and it says that here's what Messiah does, and, and, he, and crucifixion is not there. And Jesus said, you know, <laughs> Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking the thoughts of man, not of God. And he went ahead and used Peter anyway. And over and over and over again, this Jesus, who is absolute truth, uses befuddled people who don't quite understand it all, but he's able to bring them along in it. Now, the world doesn't approach it that way. The world says, well, if truth is absolute, and you say truth is absolute, how can you ever be wrong, and how can you ever do this and that? No, the reason for that is Jesus is the truth. And he's bringing us by the power of the Holy Spirit closer and closer, conformed to the image of God's dear Son. That's how we live. The world doesn't understand that. Jesus had all power and authority. <laughs> the disciples sort of suspected that when they went to him in the boat, said, um, Jesus, you know, you wake. Um, we're drowning here. <laughs> Jesus stands up. He looks at the winds of the waves. says, peace be still. Dead calm. That kind of power. And yet over and over and over again, the disciples doubt, doubt. And over and over again, what, what, is, what was his pet name for his disciples? Oh, ye of little faith. And the world would say, if you believe God is all-powerful, then you should be able to explain everything that's going on. I can't explain it. But Jesus is the power of God power and the wisdom of God. And we are drawn ever closer to him, conformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to the image of God's dear Son. world does not understand that. But that's who we are in Jesus Christ. And so we, we, we come to this point, and Paul says, look, you got all this stuff floating around. you got all this cultural um, ideas floating around. I had to reject about four or five terms before I got to that one. Uh, you, you, you have all these, these common sense things that everybody knows that just aren't true. Don't be captive to the philosophy of this age, to the philosophy of the world. It's human tradition and it's deception. Be captive to Jesus Christ, your way of life according to who Jesus Christ is. The image of God, firstborn of, of, of creation, the head of the body of the church. And that's how our lives are set free. They can put the body in a cell somewhere. But we are free in Christ. The world can threaten us, but they can't ultimately do anything to us. In some ways, this is an exciting time to be a Christian. I was thinking about this the other day. When I was coming up, and I was like these boys over here, and I was asked to be a Christian, all, all I was being asked to do was don't drink, don't do drugs, behave yourself. Now we're asking these boys to be Christians, and what we're asking them to do is give up that promotion, 
get fired from your job, be kicked out of your house, lose your property, make new friends in jail. I don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. You know? Our society is returning to first century paganism. But oh, the glory, we are returning to first century Christianity. So don't be captive to the world's philosophy, but live, be captive according to Christ. Let's bow for prayer together. And Father, how thankful I am that you do not leave us as orphans, but constantly come to us and bring us to you. That even before we get to the next turn in the road, you're already there. Before we come to the next obstacle, you've already provided a way for victory over it and through it. Father, how thankful I am that we can trust you entirely and completely to lead us according to your glory in Christ. And so, Father, this morning I'm praying that your Holy Spirit would continue to give us the courage of faith to stand firm for Christ, to live for him, so that all that we are, everything that we are, would point to the glory of Jesus Christ. And I ask it in his name. Amen.